Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Thank you for that introduction, Richard. Just before we start, um, can I just ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads? We're just going to pray right now. Father, we just thank you for your love toward us, Lord. Thank you so graciously you've reminded us of that this morning. And Father, as we come to your word, your precious word that you've entrusted to us, Father, I am aware that I am incapable of bringing what needs to be brought without your Holy Spirit. And so we just say, Holy Spirit of God, our hearts are ready to hear your word. Our hearts are ready to be touched and moved and shaped and molded by you this morning, Spirit of God. Have your way, because we are yours. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Praise God. I hope that um, everyone's enjoying the new series that we've started on the cross and the crown. The one thing that I think is really important to say is that this isn't a new teaching series. I just want to emphasize that. We've not decided to have a new teaching series on the cross and the crown. This is a call from the Spirit of God to survey the wondrous cross of Christ. He's called us to do this at this time for a specific reason, because God always knows what's ahead. So he knows what we need to do today to prepare for tomorrow. So I just want you to bear in that in mind when we um, speak on these things and when we minister from the word that God is seeking to do something new in every single one of us. So personally, I'm really hungry to see new things in the cross of Christ. I believe I've got some treasures for us this morning. There's a lot to fit in this morning. So I want you to engage your brains and your hearts and concentrate. And I believe by the spirit of God, we're going to get there. Um, What I'd like to talk about this morning is, as the title suggests, being at the crossroad. And um, the cross of Christ, the more you look at the cross, the more you realize how countercultural it is to the society in which we live. When you look below the surface, you realize how it runs completely contrary to the values of this world in which you and I have grown up. And very importantly, the most essential thing about every person on this planet, the most important thing about you is what you think about the cross and the person who died upon it. There's nothing more important in your life because it has eternal significance for you and for every single person on this planet. That's why it's important. That's why it has to be central to the gospel that we carry out into the world. The gospel is the cross of Christ him crucified and raised from the dead, which is why the Apostle Paul decided that everywhere he went, that he would preach Christ and Christ crucified. And that's where his gospel started. But the cross of Christ, by its very nature, will either be an offense to you, or it will be something in which you glory. It will either be offensive or something which is the most joyous, most wonderful, most beautiful thing that you know of. All of us in this room who are believers that have embraced the cross, it's the latter, isn't it? We see the beauty in the cross. You can't remain neutral about the cross. 
It's an either-or thing. You either accept it and embrace it, or you walk away and you reject it. It brings us, all of us, not just us in here, but us out there, to a decision point. It brings us to a crossroad where we have to decide, is it God's way, or is it the way of the world? And as Moses said to the Israelites, it's life or death. Choose life. Please choose life. And that's God's call to the world at the minute. It's life or death. Choose life. I've done it all for you already. You just need to choose life. Just turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses from here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start reading at verse 18. This is Paul speaking to the uh, church in Corinth, and he's talking about the power of God in the cross and how the world regards the cross. And just before we start reading that, what I'd like to look at today is two things. I'd like to look at why the cross is offensive to the world, what the world thinks of the cross, truly thinks of the cross, not on the surface, but underneath the surface. And then I'd like to look at what we think about the cross. I'd like us to consider what the cross means to you and to me. And we're going to start reading in verse 18. Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Try not to take that personally. <laughs> God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's the key, folks. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, and I proclaimed to you the testimony of God, about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Praise God. So Paul is saying that this message of the cross that he'd taken out into the world is met with derision and is considered foolishness in the eyes of the world. And I think there are three ways in which I believe that the cross regards, the cross is regarded by the world. Just three main things I want to give you. The first is this, and this is really at the heart of why the world in its essence, will reject the cross. The first thing is this, it contradicts all human wisdom. It contradicts all human wisdom. How does it do that? Well, it's a declaration by God that mankind cannot fix its own problems. Now, if you know anything about history and you look back over the history of the world, there have been many great rulers, there have been many great minds, They've been wonderful philosophers. They've been great artists. They've been those who've devised great systems of government. They've been those that've come out with lots of wisdom. But none of them have come close to fixing the world's problems, have they? Here we are, thousands of years later, with all of our wisdom, our philosophy, our ideas, our technology, our systems of government, and we are no closer to fixing the world's problems. The world is under a delusion that if we just have more of the same, we're going to fix the world's problems. But the cross says otherwise. The cross says you can't fix the problem on your own. You can't fix it at all. You can't be saved by your ideas. And when the world looks at Jesus, what does it see? Well, people, lots of people have spoken about Jesus. Lots of people acknowledge that he lived on this earth. And they can see the record of his life that's left behind. They look at the things that he said. They look at the Sermon on the Mount. What a wonderful sermon that was. What a wonderful set of teachings to live by. And they look at Jesus and they think, yeah, he was a great man. He was a great philosopher. He had wonderful teachings. And if we could only live by those teachings, then we'd all get along better. But ultimately, he was just a martyr who died for those teachings. You see, the world has not even begun to understand who Jesus was. And if you think that that's what the gospel is, Jesus' teachings, then you're wrong. The gospel is the cross of Christ. Jesus didn't come to save us with wonderful teachings, folks. He didn't come to save us with sermons. He came to die, and that's the thing that saved us. And that's the thing that will save the world. And therefore, it's completely contrary to what the world believes about itself about the world, what the world thinks it can do. The world is offended by the fact that God's plan is so simple. It is so simple, isn't it? Jesus came to die, he died, was raised again, and that fixed the world's problems. And there's something in the heart of man that looks upon that and says, it can't be that simple, can it? It can't just be one man dying, can it? Well, all the world's problems started with one man, and they ended with one man. And yes, it is that simple. But the world looks upon the cross and says, where's the cleverness in all this? Where's the grand scheme? Where's the grand design? It's just a man dying on a tree. It's an ignoble ignoble death. 
Where's the cleverness in all this? If this is God's plan. You see, it's foolishness to the world. But as Paul's, we've just read, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. It's far too simple. And therefore, men have always mocked the cross from the moment when Jesus carried the cross and people were mocking him. They're still mocking him today. They're mocking him in their worldly philosophies. They're mocking him when they look upon him and say the things that they say. They're mocking him when they take his name in vain every minute of the day. They don't take him seriously. And the other thing in which it contradicts human wisdom is it's not a cooperative plan. The cross is 100% God's work. We're not invited to participate in the cross. You know, sometimes we can be forgiven for thinking when we carry a gospel out into the world that we carry an invitation. You're not. When you go out into the world and announce the gospel, you are carrying good news. This doesn't require anything of you if you're an unbeliever. It's telling you something that God has already done. God has done it all. He doesn't need you to do anything except accept, accept what he has done to believe. That's all you need to do. That means it's not up for debate what Jesus did on the cross. God didn't seek our consent to do it. He didn't seek our cooperation to do it. He didn't seek our approval to send Jesus to die. How many of us would have agreed with that plan? I think in our fallen state, we'd have said, oh, I'm sure you can come up with something different to that, Father. I'm sure God could come up with something other than killing his own son, surely. The cross is take it or leave it. You either take the cross road or you don't. It's uncompromising. And that's harsh today because everything today is up for debate. Everything today is about compromise and accommodating what other people think and not offending. God doesn't care about any of that, folks. He just says, this is the cross. You embrace it or you walk away. It's life or death. The second way in which the world struggles with the cross is this. The cross condemns all human effort. I think this is the harshest thing for us to handle. And sometimes we still struggle with it, even now. The cross was a declaration of human failure, but it, it also says that all human efforts towards being saved amount to nothing. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us fell short of God's glory. God said to us this morning, you were not worthy. And the cross declares that. You were not worthy. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were by our very nature objects of wrath. And sometimes you can look upon that and say, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I wasn't that bad, was I? I mean, yeah, I was a sinner, but I wasn't a murderer or anything, or I wasn't, I wasn't like Hitler or anything. But the word says that I was an object of wrath. And you know, it's only when you've seen God's holiness, it's only when you've glimpsed of God's holiness that you realize why you are an object of wrath. Because God cannot tolerate sin. And the cross condemns human effort because it says this, only the death of my son can atone 
for all the sin in the world. I've got a um, couple of verses from a hymn I just want to read. This is a hymn you've probably read, uh, probably sung a while back now. I don't think I've, I've sung it for a long time, but it was a wonderful uh, hymn called Rock of Ages. Remember that one, Rock of Ages? And there's two verses in the middle, and it perfectly sums up for me the fact that the cross says that there was nothing, nothing I could do, there was nothing in my efforts that would atone for the life that I've been saved from. It says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. They're wonderful words, aren't they? Do you remember that feeling when it dawned on you that there was nothing you could do to earn God's approval, his favour or his love? And then you just had to let go of everything in your life. That's an offence to the world, that there's nothing of merit at all in what we produce as men and women. Nothing at all that can earn righteousness. In order to understand why God condemns all human effort, we've got to go back to the beginning and see what happened when sin came into the world. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Beg your pardon, Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick pick up the narrative. This is about where uh, Satan came to Eve in the garden and was tempting her to eat of the fruit of the one tree that God has said, don't eat of that fruit because you will surely die. Satan says this in verse 4 of chapter 3, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Now, I want you to remember three things. Verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Okay? Now turn with me to 1 John 2. And right the opposite end of the word. 1 John chapter 2. There's three elements there that we've just picked out. And there are three elements that came into the world when man sinned. Satan already knew them because Satan was already in the grip of sin himself. He'd sinned against God. But these three elements came into the world and they are characteristic of the world 
When the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about the globe, the planet, creation. It's talking about a spirit that's at work within the world. It's talking about mankind that has fallen away from his creator. So if you go with me to 1 John 2 and then verse 15. The Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's that non-compromise again. It's one or the other. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So John's picked up on those three elements again. And in the New Living Translation, there's a really good rendering of this. You won't hear me say that very often, so I'll say it once more, just for Richard's benefit. In the New Living Translation, there is a really good rendering of this. The New Living talks about these three things. The first one is a craving for physical pleasures. Craving for physical pleasures. A craving for everything we see with our eyes. And thirdly, a pride in our achievements and possessions. You read those again. A craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. And those are the three elements at work in the world. And if you look at the world, if you look at history, you will see those three elements running all the way through, everything. They're the seeds that are at work in the world. When Adam and Eve chose to eat of that fruit, Satan had said, you'll be like God. He was lying to them. They wouldn't be like God at all. But they chose to step outside of a boundary that their father had given them. What Satan was really saying was this, look, God said you can't do that, so why don't you decide what you're going to do? You set your own boundaries. God has set a boundary for you, but why don't you set your boundaries? That's what God does. So if you decide to set your own boundaries, you'll be like God. Well, no, you won't be like God. Because Adam and Eve were made to be dependent on God, to live a life that glorified him, to be in that fellowship. We saw that wonderful picture that Nick fleshed out for us this morning of walking with God as a father and child walking together. That's what we were made for, folks. We were made for a harmonious, dependent relationship on our Father, to want for nothing, to be fearful for nothing, to be striving for nothing. For him to be the center of our universe. And as soon as man stepped outside of that, they became the center of their own universe. And that's when it went all horribly wrong. Because actually, they didn't become their own boss, Adam and Eve. They became subject to these three elements that were part of the fruit that they'd taken. And these are the three elements that now dominate mankind today. And everything, therefore, that man does carries the seed of that within it. It carries the seed of corruption. That's why God says, however good the works are, if they're not part of me, then they won't earn you righteousness. They're just dead works. They're dead works. The world can't cope with that because the mindset of the world is to say, no, I want, we want to take pride in the things we've done. We've done good things, God. Is this not worthy of any merit? And God says, no, none. The only thing that can save you is the shedding of blood 
And Richard pointed out to us a few weeks ago that the first thing that happened when that covenant was broken with God is that God came down and slaughtered an animal to provide a covering for them. Sometimes when you read the word, it can be, seem odd that sin has to atone. Sorry, that death has to atone for sin. That there has to be a shedding of blood. Why? Well, I've thought about this for a long time. And the only thought I have is this. Sin is so toxic that the only way to deal with it is to kill it. And God knows that. When sin comes in, it's toxic. And you can't get rid of it. It's a disease that has to be eradicated. And God knows that can only happen by death. And that's why that's how sin is always dealt with. It has to be by death. Otherwise, it will always linger in some form. And God cannot tolerate sin. And he knows that it will cause decay and corruption to spread in this wonderful creation. That's why there has to be death. And that's why to embrace the cross, we have to reject the world. We're at a crossroads. It's God's way or it's the way of the world. The third way in which the cross is offensive to the world is that it confounds human understanding. It confounds human understanding. Firstly, it eludes man's ignorance. In other words, man is not capable of assessing the value of what God has done. We just read that one of the consequences of man stepping outside of God's boundaries and taking of the forbidden fruit is that he would be dominated by a physical craving and a craving for everything that he can see. And that's how the world works. It judges everything by the natural. You see, that day, man died spiritually. And therefore, Adam and Eve had no longer had an ability to perceive things that were spiritual and thus have an eternal value. They could only see things that were natural and physical. And from that day forth, man has always judged everything by what he can see, touch, feel, and measure. And man is still doing that today. In 1 Samuel 16, God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint David as king. And Samuel's brother, uh, David's brothers are there, and he's going to the wrong brother. And God says, no, 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 no. You're judging by the outward appearance. But I judge every man and woman by their heart. Now, God wasn't just saying, I believe. He wasn't just saying, I'm judging on the personality, the things that someone says. It's deeper than that. God sees into the spirit of a person, perceives what's going on spiritually, not just what goes on physically, not just what's heard and seen and felt. And if you just go with me back to 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So this is, this is just a few verses further on. Paul makes comments on this very thing. How are we all doing? Okay? You with me? Fantastic. Good. So let's go to 1 Cor 2 and then verse 12. I can hear some rustling of paper still, so... We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit, with a capital S, 
So let's just stop there for a second. We've not received the spirit of the world. That's a small s. It's a spirit that's at work within the world that we've already just read about. Those three elements. But the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, who is from God. That we may understand. That we may understand. You've been given the Holy Spirit so that you may understand something. This is one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit coming into your heart, is that you would understand, you would perceive what God has freely given us. You don't understand the value of what God has done until you receive the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gave you a revelation of what the cross meant. Up to that point, someone died on a tree. So what? And suddenly, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes And it wasn't just someone dying on a tree. It was the author of life dying on a tree and dying for you and bleeding out for you. Suddenly, everything changed for us, didn't it? Suddenly, we were cut to the heart. Do you remember that moment when that first revelation came? Folks, it is the will of God that every day you have a revelation of that. And I'm really sad to say that that is not our common experience Let's be honest. We don't have a revelation every day. But we should. We should have an ever greater revelation every day. That might sound like a tall order, but you know what? That's what God wants for your life and for mine. That every day I have a greater revelation. That cutting to the heart. Anyway, we'll come back to that. This is what we speak, verse 13. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the world cannot accept the cross because it doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It can't perceive things that are of spiritual value. Man sees only contradictions in the cross. This God that we claim loves us and loves his son was willing to kill him even though his son was innocent. So you're telling me that the author of life died on the cross? Wesley says in his hymn, and can it be that I should gain? That's another old one we've not sang for a while. I'm making a pitch here, by the way to bring some of these back. (laughs) Give me some support. (laughs) Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. How can one who is immortal die? Doesn't make sense, does it? Certainly doesn't make sense to the world. It contradicts. It also exposes man's self-confidence. You see, men and women have always only been willing to accept the things not only they can perceive, but the things that they can measure. They can't accept anything outside of that. Anything that we can understand with our minds, man says, we accept that. If we can't understand it with our minds, we reject it. And that's built on a self-belief that man has within himself the ability to perceive all truth. You see the arrogance of it? Man is spiritually dead 
and cannot see most of what exists because the spiritual vastly outweighs to eternal limits that which is physical. A man sits in the physical and says, well, I'm sure I can take all this in. As long as I just have enough education, have enough degrees, build enough telescopes, then I can discover all there is to discover. And unfortunately, because knowledge has doubled and, and doubled again and doubled again and grown at such a pace, that arrogance has gathered pace with it. Man believes that he has the ability within himself, the capacity to comprehend all truth. And it's just not true. And the last thing is this, in way in which it, it um, confounds the world, is this, it violates man's sense of justice. The very concept that one who is innocent should be punished for one who is not is a violation of justice. Surely someone should get their just desserts. An innocent suffering for the guilty is offensive and barbaric in today's world. Just the thought of killing someone for sin is barbaric. God punishing his own son is where we see, as we've said recently, God's attributes accentuated. We see them in clarity. We see God's wrath completely unabated. God did not hold back when he punished Jesus for our sins. He didn't go lightly on him. Well, Jesus didn't do this. So I know I'm punishing him for your sins, but I'll, I'll go a little bit lightly on it. You know, like in the movies where they sort of fake a punch? It wasn't like that. God the Father vented his full wrath. He punished Jesus, and he destroyed sin. But at the same time, he loved his son with a love that's deeper and greater than anything we can imagine or conceive. And those two things just don't sit well together, do they? See, to the human mind, they seem to contradict one another. But they are both present in God's very nature. And that's another reason why the world will struggle. And lastly, because the cross doesn't differentiate amongst any of us. The cross says that all of us were equally helpless, all of us were equally guilty and deserving of punishment. And there is something within mankind that always seeks to differentiate sin. It's called self-righteousness. Look, I know I'm not a saint. I lie occasionally, but just white lies. Okay, I steal some office supplies every now and then, but hey, I'm not as bad as people who commit crimes. I'm not as bad as people who have murdered other people. I'm not as bad as people who are guilty of war crimes. Surely I can't be lumped into the same category as those people. You see how it completely contradicts human wisdom. It doesn't differentiate between any of us. And you have to accept that if you're going to embrace the cross. You can't cling on to vestiges of self-righteousness. You can't say to yourself, well, do you know what? God has saved me, but I was in slightly less need of being saved than some of those people. You can't. And there's something within our old nature that really hates that, to be lumped in with others who are really vile. 
The world looks on Christ with pity. But you know what? On the road to Golgotha, he told them not to weep for him. Don't pity me. Don't weep for me. This isn't some great sacrifice of a pacifist philosopher. This is the greatest victory the world has ever known. I'm going to conquer the powers of darkness. I'm going to deal with sin once and for all. I'm going to eradicate the disease. I'm on my way to victory. You see, the world looks and sees the bruised and battered man who's a martyr. But when we look, we see a king, a conquering king, on his way to the greatest moment in all of created history. You see how we see it's different? It's either or, folks. You have to let go of one to embrace the other. Just turn with me to Galatians 6. I just want to have a look now at what it means to us. What does the cross mean to the Christian? And in Galatians 6, verse 14, this for me is, is the most succinct way any of us could express what the cross means to us. Once again, it's the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We've got three things there. And we'll start with the last one. I to the world. I've been crucified to the world. For the Christian, the first thing for the cross is that it demands my death. It demands my death. That's really harsh, isn't it? I don't know whether you think about the gospel as just good news because, hey, it's great, and come on in, we're having a party. You know, it is good news, but if you really want to give yourself to Christ, you really have to surrender everything. It's a death. Something else I'd like to read you, this is from... um, one of our forebears, one of our ancestors in the faith, a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was a, a Christian um, who was hanged in Nazi Germany for partaking in the plot to kill Hitler. And he'd been in prison for some time, and he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And this is just a great quote. He says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments to this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. Paul says in Romans 6, doesn't he? We've died with him, we'll be raised with him. We give our lives over to death. Thus, It begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bid him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. The death in Jesus Christ 
the death of the old man at his core. Serious stuff, isn't it? Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, you could be forgiven for reading those words and saying, we've got to take a cross and carry a cross on our back. As if we have to carry some heavy weight. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. You know, sometimes people say, it's my cross to bear. I'm I'm carrying something, but it's, it's my cross to bear. Which is usually to elicit sympathy. Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. What he was saying was, is that every day we have to die. We have to die to the old man. It means complete surrender to Jesus every single day of our lives. Paul said in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me read that again. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, when we came to the cross and embraced the cross, we had to let go of our old lives. And when that happened, God took us out of one kingdom and brought us into another. But there are elements of that old kingdom that are still resident within us. Not within your spirit, but within your mind. And therefore, we have to train ourselves to think differently with the Holy Spirit's help. And that's what Jesus meant when he says, take up your cross daily. That there will be parts of you that will try to live as you used to live. But the Holy Spirit wants us to die to those things. Wants us to see them for what they are and put them to death. That our lives are no longer our lives. But that our lives are Jesus living through us. That means his interests, his priorities are the things that drive our lives. Now, we have to be honest about that and say, the agenda, the things that drives my life, is it always aligned with Jesus's? Is it always the things that matter to him that are the things that matter to me? Now, I'm not saying that we neglect things that are legitimate in our lives, but it's about the priority they take in our lives. And I think we all know when there's an agenda which is not Christ, and that's what's driving our life. Sometimes it's your work. Sometimes it's just an easy life. We make choices that we think will make our life easier, more comfortable. And sometimes Jesus is saying, no, no, you're my servant, and this is what I want you to do. And I want you to do that regardless of the comfort level that may involve for you. And that's a death taking a decision to do that and to submit our will, just as we saw Jesus submitting his will to that of the Father in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And that's how God takes out those last vestiges of the world that are within our thinking. Second thing is this, it disentangles me from sin's hold. He said, the world has been crucified to me. 
what we just read. The world has been crucified to me. So the cross disentangles us from the hold of sin upon us. The world has lost its power to control us any longer. In Ephesians 2, you don't have to turn with me, but in Ephesians 2, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul talks about us. He says, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That was us. All of us who... All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. In other words, every single person in this world, until they've come to the cross, is being driven by something, unbeknownst to them, a natural craving. A craving of the physical appetites of the body. Those elements that we read about in the world is driving the life of everybody. But when we came to the cross, we were removed from those things. Those things were crucified to us. In other words, they were rendered powerless in your life. Sometimes we forget that, and we act as if they have power over us. We don't have power anymore. It's not that you can't sin now, but you're able not to. It's not that you can't do those things, but those things cannot control you anymore. They no longer have power over you. And we have to remember that day to day. When we got saved, our spirits were reborn before we were spiritually dead in our sins. When your spirit was reborn, something happened to you that changed the way that you conduct your life forever. And it was this. Your spirit became the dominant force in your life. Your physical nature, your mind, does not like that. Because the mind wants to be in control. Now, I'm not talking about people that are just all airy-fairy spiritual and don't use their minds. It's about who's in control. With fallen man, the mind, the fallen mind, is always in control and cannot perceive and understand it and all those things that we said. But you're different. Your spirit is dominant. And that's why we have to feed the spirit the things of the spirit so that the lives we live, our spirits are deciding what we do moment to moment and not our minds which were set on the course of this world. And the more that we do that, the more that we start to reprogram the mind. And neuroscientists are just now starting to understand how long-term behavior starts to rewire, literally rewire, the brain. Thought patterns can change the pattern of the brain, the way the brain works. This is what the word said 2,000 years ago. So it disentangles us from sin's hold. And the last thing is this. It displays God's glory. It displays God's glory in me. Paul said, forbid it that I should boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord. And this is the most important thing for us is that the cross is the thing that we should glory in as Christians. You know, the Roman philosopher Cicero said that the word cross was unmentionable in polite Roman society. John Stott says this, that which every, sorry, that which the average Roman citizen regarded as an object of shame, disgrace, and even disgust 
was for Paul his pride, boasting and glory. Indeed, the English word boast is not strong enough to express his attitude about the cross. There is no exact equivalent in the English language to the Greek word kalkachomai. It means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. That's what Paul was saying about the cross. Wow. He had some strong feelings about the cross, didn't he? The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. Paul was obsessed with the cross. If you were a mate of Paul's, you'd be talking to his other mates and saying, I wish Paul had stopped banging on about the cross. Every time we sit down and have a meal, he's got to get it into the conversation. He was obsessed with the cross because he'd seen something. When we see something in the cross, we see things in the true light of what they are. That means we see the world for what it is, and we see the cross for what it is. The cross doesn't just bring us to a crossroad, to a decision point, but the cross is a road. And I don't know whether you have just gone past the crossroads, you've embraced the cross, but you've not gone far down the road. That's the challenge for us, folks. That we can accept it and embrace the cross, but we've not ventured down the road very far. What lies down the road is a life of dying to self, of putting to death that which was from the old, of putting Jesus first and living for him. And the further we go down that road, the more he opens our eyes to the truth, the truth of how unworthy we were, the truth of how abhorrent our sin was, and therefore, in contrast, the truth of how wonderful it was that he loved us whilst we were his enemies, whilst we were a vile abhorrence to him and what he did for us. And Paul the Apostle, in the course of his life, he didn't just come to the crossroads, he went down the crossroad. And the further he got down that road, the more he realized how wonderful the cross was, so that it became his obsession. Let me tell you about the cross, he would say. It's wonderful. The more I look at it, the more I see. It's not what it at first appears to be, but I'm seeing new things in it every day. Folks, that's what God wants for us, and that's, where, that's why we're here at this place. The Lord wants to give you an ever deeper and greater revelation of what he did for you that day. And just when you think you've seen it all, the Holy Spirit says, I've got more for you. You see, we perceive of knowledge as knowledge in a book. We say, well, I've read the book. I've absorbed the knowledge. But spiritual truths don't work that way. They're eternal. That means they're bottomless. There's no book that can contain them. So there is always a deeper and greater revelation. Paul said this. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and become like him in his death. His obsession was this greater revelation of the cross. His obsession was to be completely and utterly surrendered to Jesus. And that's why it was his obsession. That's why it was his boast. Because he could talk about how he was unworthy 
But God, in his infinite love, had rescued a man like him. And I just want to, this morning, I thank you for for bearing with me. I just want you to consider this morning what the cross means to you, personally. Just close your eyes for a moment, would you? It may be for you that the cross is still a mystery, which it is to us all. That you understand what Jesus has done for you, but you know there's more. You know that your life isn't yet fully surrendered. You know that the cross is not your, the place of your boasting. That actually you're still... In some respects, you're still relying on things in your life, other things that are driving the agenda of your life, other things that are really more important than him. And I just want you to consider those things for a moment. It may be that you're here today and you've never taken the crossroad. You've heard about Jesus, and today is your decision point. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus, I am here to tell you that what seems to be a death is really life. That if you hang on to things in your life, then you can forfeit your soul. But if you let go of everything for Jesus, then really you've lost nothing, but you've gained everything. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus, he wants to save you. He loves you infinitely. And he wants you to know that love this morning. He wants you to let go of your old life. And he wants to show you the wonder and beauty of his cross. The wonderful thing that he did for you. And the power of God. And his invitation is, don't let your life rest on the wisdom of men. Don't let your life rest on the things of this world that are fleeting and are only shallow and skin deep. But instead, let your life be transformed by the power of God. This morning, if you want to make that decision for the first time, I want to invite you to come down here. We're going to close our meeting. But if that's you, I'd like to lead you to the cross. I'd like to lead you to a power and a transformed life. And if there's anyone here this morning that feels challenged by some of the things I've said, let me tell you this. I'm challenged by everything I've said. I find this a challenge. I need to go further down the crossroad. And you need to come with me. And if that's you and you feel challenged, I want to pray with you today. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. But say, Lord, I'm willing to completely surrender, to go further down the road, to be lost in you, so that I'm obsessed with your cross. I'm obsessed and boasting every day. So if that's you, I want to invite you to come down the front as well, and we will pray for you this morning.
Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harbour. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you. Thank you.